me white waffle. All right. Oh, hello there, Waffle Easters. Hello. You're listening to Copyright Waffle, the podcast that brings you a nice cup of copyright enlightenment with a slice of cake. My name's Chris Morrison. And my name's Jane Secker. And we're a couple of self-confessed copyright geeks who run the website copyrightliteracy.org. We're on a mission to make learning about copyright fun, engaging and empowering. And we're your host for Copyright Waffle, which is an archive of amazing chats with copyright experts and interesting people whose lives have been touched by copyright. Uh, so we're very pleased to be joined today by our guest, who is Dr. Maren Deepwell. So good morning, Maren. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. I'm looking forward to waffling around copyright. Well, it's very good to have <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, really great to have you, Maren. And for those of you who don't know, Maren is the uh, chief executive of the Association for Learning Technology. Um, she's really been so supportive of our work recently. Um, but just to tell you briefly some of the things um, that we know about Maren, and she's probably going to tell us lots more things, but she's an open practitioner. She is a feminist. She is a, an artist. I believe you're a sculpt, sculptor as well. Um, and um, you are somebody, you know, who has kind of been in our sphere, I guess, on the fringes of it for a while, but we've kind of really started kind of delving into this world of copyright, haven't we? But Maren, I mean, you you sort of, you say, oh, I, I'm not sure how much you know about copyright, but I mean, what is, what's your hi history with it? What, what, how did you first get interested in it? Or is this is the point you can tell us you want to run away, you're not interested. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess I first um, started really having to deal with copyright when I was doing my PhD. So um, as a PhD student, I studied anthropology and my specialism is in material and visual culture. So as a sort of former teenage goth, I spent three years um, researching Victorian cemeteries and burial culture. And um, I came across quite a lot of um, images and materials that I wanted to use as part of my research. And um, when you're looking through sort of, you know, archives of Victorian funeral directors, directories and like magazines with articles of sort of coffin adverts. That's when I first came around copyright and trying to figure out, you know, has the copyright expired? Is this still copyrighted? Can I, you know, reuse this? And that's when I came across fair use and all sort of educational context. So, yeah, that was my um, start of my um, copyright knowledge, I think. Oh wow! Wow! So you were you were looking into a particular type of I mean it was the aesthetic elements of that Victorian um, sort of cemetery funereal <laughs> style. <laughs> well, um, I'm sure everybody is dying to know, um, but my um, actually I was looking at how um, Victorian um, cemeteries managed change and um, they weren't very good at it and um, ran into a lot of different difficulties all to do with um, British sort of social and cultural values. So what I was looking at is how, you know, how do you manage change when it comes to dead people and burial and what happens 100 years later? So my field work was in a cemetery called um, West Norwood Cemetery, which is in South London. And um, yeah, I spent a very happy year there and it um, related sort of funeral businesses around the area um, doing my um, ethnography. 
See, wow. it's one of the, it's, yeah, it's one of the things that I find so interesting about um, my job is that anyone who's working with archival material does come across these these copyright questions, and you get these always interesting take on what it is that someone's looking into. Um, so yeah, no, that that's that's fascinating. Is it an interest that has continued to this day? Do you find yourself wandering past a, a, a Victorian cemetery and think, oh, I could go and have a look at that and probably geek out on what I think happened there over the last hundred years? Oh, it's become a bit of a running joke, I think. Um, particularly people who I've, I've worked with for quite a while all know about um, all know about my PhD topic. And so when I used to still travel for work um, prior to 2020, it was often the case that I went somewhere for a conference or an event and someone pointed out to me, oh, yes, and there's a local cemetery nearby. And to the uninitiated <laughs> delegates around, <laughs> they were very confused. So I've um, I've been taken on mini tours of cemeteries in Galway and in Edinburgh and um, lots of other places that I've been to. And, yeah, I think I guess it's a, it's a bit of an in-joke, but it's also a genuine interest. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. So, so that's an interesting way into copyright though isn't it <laughs> absolutely <the> <laughs> <laughs> so if we we fast forward to where we are now you're the the chief executive of of, of alt um and uh it's a pretty busy time for people um in the world of of learning technology education and online learning so um do you want to just give us an idea of what your um, you know what you're working with at the moment in as as your role there what you're seeing as your challenges and and maybe then touch on the copyright elements of that um uh, you know as part of that Yes, thank you. So the association works across all sectors of education and training. And I think it's fair to say that our members have never been busier. I think, you know, ALP was founded in 1993. So in about 18 months, we'll be celebrating our 30th birthday. And We've been looking at knowledge exchange, dissemination, innovation in learning, teaching and assessment with digital technology for you know close to 30 years now. And last year, there was a whole new population of academics, researchers, librarians and senior management all across sectors who suddenly woke up to the very um, real necessity of using digital technologies to keep education going. And I think in many ways, this has opened up a lot of opportunities for us, but clearly also a lot of challenges. And there are a couple of areas in particular where I think this relates very much directly onto different licensing and copyright issues. Um, one of the areas in particular that members of ALT are currently working on is the campaign for expanding the use of open textbooks and open educational resources more widely. I'm sure you, you know, you are both very familiar with that. But I think access to library resources has, I think, brought people's sort of lack of literacy in copyright terms really to the forefront of, of practice day to day. But it's also highlighted how little we've done in the last five years in the UK to invest in open textbook initiatives on a national scale. And I've had countless stories of students, you know, who don't live near their library, who've been told, well, well, in order to get this book, you could go to the library and get it. And obviously, when you're in lockdown, you know, 50 miles or more away from your university, there's no way you can get in person. 
So I think that's been one of the key issues. And one of the other areas that um, we've been working on is really around accessibility. And that I think also has a lot of overlap with the work that you and your group are doing on copyright. And I was particularly impressed with one of the webinars that you organized with um, Alistair McNaughton, Elizabeth Charles and Ben Watson to look at how um, the new or more recently introduced accessibility legislation and guidelines for VLEs and um, across the board was impacting practice. So that is one real area um, of concern. But I feel per more sort of practically day to day, I'm running a, a small charitable organization. I've always sort of had to look very much at, you know, how we can most make legitimate use of as many resources as we can in order to just operate day to day. And so that's, I think, um, via things like image rights and reusing for educational purposes, copyrighted materials, those sorts of challenges more day to day managing the organisation is part of my day job. Yeah. Okay. That's that's really interesting. So I'd I'd like to pick up on uh, you mentioned their open textbooks, and as as Jane said in the outset, you're um, an open practitioner, and you talk about open leadership. So I'd be quite interested to know kind of how you first became aware of openness as a concept, and how you first kind of got to grips with those ideas about being more open and sharing things, and how you perhaps see some of those tensions where people are, are quite worried in some cases about letting go of things and want to kind of feel that there's safety if you like in in holding on to things and restricting oh yeah absolutely um i think there are big cultural challenges and personal challenges holding on to things but also the sort of not grown here or not made here syndrome which really affects a lot of um individuals who are creating learning content um that they might be able to remix or adapt from from legitimate sources instead um so i'm all too familiar with those challenges but i guess when it comes to open education and openness more widely i first got um into open access publishing when alt's journal went open access in 2012 um i was actually responsible for setting up ALT's open access repository, um, which was a, a research project at the time and one of the first projects I managed for ALT before I was um, chief executive. And I also managed the original transition that we made to become one of the first um, scholarly associations journals in the UK to move to gold open access. So I was part of a group who wrote the guide to becoming a gold open access journal for scholarly journals here in the UK. And I was particularly impressed with seeing the um, impact that that had on the dissemination of the journal. It was um, such an astronomical growth in readership um, that it was it was hard to believe. I think we we checked the figures for years and double checked them and triple checked them, and you know it was exponential growth in in readership and and you know associated impact. So that is how I first sort of became introduced to open access publishing and open educational resources. But then in 2012, when I took on my current role, I was really looking for examples of leadership practice 
by individuals I could identify with. And at the time, I was like a 32-year-old woman, and I didn't have that many 32-year-old women CEO friends who I could kind of, you know, share practice with. And most of my peers were, you know, 30 years older than me and male and not particularly keen on sharing practice. So I started sort of hunting online mostly and at events for individuals who might be, you know, good examples, good role models for me to be inspired by. And that's when I really recognized the importance of sharing practice and being an open practitioner. And that's also when I started blogging about being a CEO and um, trying to record sort of quite honestly and sort of you know, with warts and all, my experience of of leading an organization. And so that's turned over time into a monthly blog series that's still going and Mm -hmm. um, blogging about, you know, different experiences, leading a team and an organization. And And you've led a a team that's also been distributed. Sorry to interrupt there, but Maren, I think, you know, that that you haven't had to shift, have you, to sort of remote working because that's how the teams worked for um, a while now, a number of years. Yeah, that's right. Um, in So when I first started working for Alt, we were still an office-based organization. Um, that was in 2008. But over three years ago, um, we made the decision, and I think the right one, to move to becoming a distributed organization. And so we didn't have the, the shift last year, that's right, to, to all work from home. We were already all working from home. But as my team point out to me regularly, and I agree with, you know, I think we were still making the transition to working in pandemic conditions. And um, I think it's fair to say that we've all gotten to know each other's families, pets, um, partners, you know, all the homeschooling dramas and domestic emergencies and, you know, very real human emergencies that happened over the last year very well. Mm. Yeah. Can I, can I just pick up on something about, because, I mean, I think being a membership organisation, I mean, the nature of membership organisations is sometimes that obviously they're not open, are they? But I, I think it's an interesting approach to how alt works in that, you know, it, it's kind of, it, it is it is very inclusive in some ways. But I mean, how do you strike that balance? <laughs> yeah, so our, our business model is more or less that nearly everything we do, you can access for free, but we survive by people still paying for it. Mm. Um, via their membership. And, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that when we started this business model, um, it it was not uniformly um, welcomed. I think um, there was a lot of sort of scepticism as to whether as the sort of gatekeeper of uh, you know, a professional, um, professional role or professionalism, um, whether that would be appropriate. But I personally I view it in I think there's two key drivers for us to being an open organization. Firstly, um, learning technology isn't defined to one specific role. There are many different professionals who you know, benefit from being members of ALT and who contribute to our community and whom we represent. And many of them are not called learning technologists. And so I don't see any point in being a gatekeeper of an artificial minority when actually we could serve a greater good of a much broader professional class who all need support and representation. And I think it reflects the nature of our discipline. Learning technology does relate to many different areas of learning, teaching and assessment at all different levels. 
Mm. And I think secondly, it's our commitment to, you know, being an independent charity. So we are funded not through government grants or projects, but through membership subscription and events. And I think it gives us a real clear accountability to our members. You, you know, our members very much vote with their feet if they don't feel that what we're doing has value to stop paying the membership fees or coming to our paid for events. Mm. And um, I think it gives us a really clear feedback mechanism <laughs> that, um, if you know members continue to join and our community continues to grow we're doing something right yeah i think yeah i think i think we've seen that as uh you know many membership organizations are finding it difficult to remain relevant and it was certainly um you know one of the reasons we wanted to to join on a formal basis the the alt family if you like to 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 become part of the group that's looking at each other's houses and seeing each other's pets and etc so just just to say um you know that you've made reference to our group and some of the webinars and that we have the links to those so that it's it's been out that that supported us right from the word go last year when we wanted to reach out to those people in our community in education who who were trying to answer some of these difficult copyright questions um, and that now that's turned into a, a special interest group which is you know formal uh, special interest group of the of the association for learning technology and is the coolest named um, <laughs> of them all quite literally with being the cool sig um, but what i wanted to ask you is uh, how you perceive um or you because you are talking to these professionals as you say in different roles um and, and with different levels of responsibility but more and more of them coming towards uh you know these conversations you're having and that you're hosting um and how do you see the the, the big challenges particularly um i think in, in terms of ethics you're doing a, a big piece of work on creating an ethical framework for learning technology. And we're very involved in that conversation and we're very pleased to have been invited to do that because there are some clear links there with, with lawfulness and legality, which aren't necessarily mm -hmm. the same as, as ethics. So do you want to talk about that work and where, where the team's got to and your views? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think this is a fascinating piece of work and it's originated from our professional accreditation framework, CMALT, and for the past few years as we've expanded that, ethical considerations have become written into that framework. But at this point, um, initially, it said, you know, reflect on the ethical considerations of your practice without necessarily spelling out what principles you should be applying. And I think one of the reasons for that is that, as I just mentioned, there are many different professional roles that are members of ALT and this framework needs to be applicable to all of them. And it can be a very big difference between, you know, maybe the ethical considerations of an HE researcher who's leading a large European project to a school teacher or an FEICT lead. But we felt that particularly over the last year, there's been such a volume of issues around student and staff well-being, around how the data that a lot of educational technology is generating is being used and exploited, um, how transparent that is, that our members have really called for um, principles and practical tools to define and interrogate what would be an ethical approach in their context and how can they hold their own practice, their institution or their suppliers 
not necessarily just to account, but how can I open up that conversation to say we have some shared values? So mm. our board of trustees, um, two, three of them, um, Bella Abrams and Sharon Flynn and Natalie Lafferty are leading a working group, which is open to anyone to join and includes industry and student representation to define principles and develop tools and practical resources to try and implement um, a set or a standard of ethical principles that can be applied across learning technology professional practice. And at the moment, we've gotten as far as defining the principles and road testing them with the members of the working group over the next month. And then the goal is for September this year to launch resources for three different sets of stakeholders, um, the individual practitioner, the institutions and industries who are developing educational technology. I think that's, that's really, really, it's a really yeah, interesting really. piece of work. And I think it made us reflect on how um, you know, copyright is rarely ever, should ever be considered in isolation and clearly never works entirely on its own. And, and one yeah. of the, you know, the, the things that, um, one of the early research projects that Jane and I did together was looking at institutions' policies on lecture recording. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, what does it mean when, uh, teachers and students are, you know, expected to agree and consent to terms and conditions that mean that that either the institution owns some of the copyright intellectual mm-hmm. property, or maybe the person delivering it does, and being clear about that. And I also mm-hmm. think it's important where you link it to that well-being question. So one of the things that came up in when we recently attended the old assembly, and it was being chaired by Dave White. Uh, from University of the Arts London, he, I think, very importantly identified dealing with a question like copyright mm-hmm. is actually a well-being issue for for teachers. If they have it, they think, oh, they they probably assume that they're doing it wrong. I would say many people mm-hmm. that don't know exactly what mm-hmm. the law allows them to do and doesn't, uh, and that's I think one of the key things that we're trying to do is create ethical environment where everybody feels supported rather than it just being another thing that is an institutional policy that says you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. You shouldn't be doing the things that you pretty much have to do to do your job properly. So that must resonate, I think, across a lot of areas for for people at the moment. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, I think one of the resources that that you've developed, the, the copyright is it a copyright literacy game? The board the game? game? The copyright card game? Is it that one? Or the, the book we put and a board game? And the publishing, board game. the publishing trap. The publishing trap probably has more in terms of the ethical consideration of it. Yeah. But yeah. I think you've given us perhaps an idea for a new game, which is a matter <laughs> of the two. Sure got well, time. I, I think I was, I remember being at um, at a session at the um, Creative Commons um, Global Summit um, a few oh, years ago. Yeah, and that's right yeah and we played one of the games and I was in in one of their sessions and I'd never played this game before and I thought it was really powerful because it gave you some really practical examples of 
you know, how important copyright considerations are just day to day. And there were lots of situations, um, like I was playing a character who had quite a different role from my own. Um, and it, it had given me a new appreciation of, you know, what considerations come into it when you're a researcher or when you're a man, um, manager or when you're a student. And I think our ethical framework has to do something similar. And mm. I'm not sure if we can go as far um, in the first year as making a, a board game for it. Although, you know, I think it might be a good idea. We can help. We can help. <laughs> and maybe this is a good idea for a future collaboration. But I, I just yeah. think it's so important to, you know, translate it from abstract kind of rules and regulations into practice. Absolutely. And that is, I think, what, concrete. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And particularly for these different roles. Um, and, and trying to look at it through these different professional lenses. And yeah. that's where one of the challenges is, I think, with learning technology is that, you know, potentially there could be dozens of roles <laughs> that you need to include in that game, you know, where, mm. where there, so many different stakeholders are. So that's why we start with the learning technologist, because ultimately that's our, you know, core expertise. And we hope to work in collaboration with, you know, groups like yourselves and other professional bodies to then expand this into different contexts, into different academic contexts, um, because it's a big piece of work that we can't do all by ourselves. But we hope to yeah. draw up the sort of core of it that can then be filtered down and adapted in different contexts. Well, we've certainly got, yeah, we've got that on our radar and we've got a working group on that. But I want to I, I want to change the subject a bit. I want to I want to <laughs> I, I ask you because you've you, you know, we we've known each other for a little a little while. And I know we've got some people in our circle that are, are sort of, uh, you know, mutual friends as well. But I'm interested in who are your you know, they may not be just copyright heroes, but who are the people that inspire you in the work right. that you do? Because you're so right. enthusiastic. You are indeed. But before you answer that question, of course, we have to have our jingle. Oh, <laughs> the jingle master. Yes, here he goes. Help us when we're starting out in our time of need Their wisdom, grace and eloquence inspires us to succeed They're the people who we work with who brighten up our day and validate our pedantry and send us on our way They're our copyright heroes So, <laughs> copyright heroes, or heroes more broadly, who are those people that inspire <laughs> you, Maren, in the work you do? <laughs> well, I must say, um, the, the copyright hero was a challenging category for me, <laughs> because I thought, um, I don't I don't know enough about the history of copyright to have um, heroes. So I thought um, there were a couple of um, copyright-related heroes and individuals that inspire me. Um, and I guess um, one one of them is probably Brian Mavis, um, who creates a lot of visual thinkery and has created an openly licensed um, remixer for visual images. And image use of images in particular has probably been the sort of 
as a conference organizer and a publisher, um, as we are sort of reusing images correctly and attributing them correctly is probably one of our real nightmares and, you know, mm. something that we really have to get right. So um, we also do things like run student artwork competitions where, you know, we want to try and help platform young artists who are still students um, to help um, with their artwork and expose that to new audiences. So talking with them through kind of copyright implications, how they can retain right but give us use of it, um, those sorts of conversations um, are really challenging for me and, you know, trying to kind of to both interpret kind of the situation correctly and legally correctly, but also doing the right thing for the person. Um, but Brian Mothers and I have done quite a lot of work together over the last sort of 10 years. And his remixer is one of the real joys of my professional practice when I get to remix images that are used in presentations or things that are sort of original, but still remixed um, and that are clearly licensed and easy to download. And now for me, that's a dream. I use his images a lot in my keynotes in particular. So, so he's done, has he done the images that are used extensively across the alt site? Yes, he has. Well. Yes, that's right. I've always, yeah. always liked the, the alt um, visual you know the, the presence that you have that it's kind yeah. of, that it makes it somewhat playful to have that visual thinkery style That's in right. there, and I've always loved that. Yeah, yeah. I, I thank you. I I really do as well. And you know, Brian hand draws and creates these, and he has a an online resource called the the Fabulous Remixer Machine, where he shares a lot of his creations, and you can log in yourself or or not log in. You don't have to log in and add colors and text and remix those images, and then download them for your own use. And mm. you can share them with others, but you can also just keep them private. And um, that's one of the the sort of yeah. I I think Brian is definitely one of my sort of copyright related heroes. <laughs> um, and the other, um, the other group that I wanted to mention um, is sort of tangentially related. It's a Wikimedia group called Women in Red. And it's a lot to okay. do with my interest in the Femme EdTech network. Um, yes. But one of the things yeah. that they do um, is try and update Wikipedia with entries about women's history and women's publications. And um, I don't know. I was going to ask you, actually, if there's any um, gender statistics on copyright as to, you know, how um, if you go back in copyright history, um, if sort of what the, the gender balance is between copyrighted material. But on Wikipedia, at any rate, there is a lot of um, work being done to try and mm. address the imbalance of how many historical entries there are about men and there are about women. So yeah. that's one of the groups that inspires me. And I thought that was a, an interesting angle, but not one that I know that much about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did I did meant to mention the Fem Ed Tech um, movement that you're you're a founding member, I think, aren't you, of it? And there's a hashtag and we can share that. Um, but it's an interesting question you ask about, I mean, women actually, in terms of like working currently in the field of copyright I, I think it's actually it does feel to me to be a quite dominated by um by by women actually a lot of the academics um who are interested in copyright um a, a lot of the people that that um we've got 
earmarked to talk to or we've talked to in the past as well are actually um, women working in copyright. I, I haven't got stats myself, but, you know. But I, I think that what we what we could definitely say, and we, we have had a conversation recently uh, with Caroline Ball, who's at the University mm-hmm. of Derby, who, who was Wikimedian of the Year, and we spoke to her about about this as well and the fact that clearly mm-hmm. there is gender bias in in Wikipedia and in most places where the people who are drawn to that work tend to be men. I think, it, yes, I would agree that there's there's a lot of extremely, um, you know, uh, high profile women working in the, the IP um, legal academic area. But I think if we go mm. back in the past, if we look about the way that copyright law was constructed, there are, there are a lot of uh, critiques there, as with many things that we see that it was built on a model that was clearly um, biased in favour mm. of, you know, the, the whole concept of the romantic author, really. And, 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 you know, science being the gentleman of science and, and, and that uh, way of looking at, at things. But um, Jane, I remember you picked up, didn't you, on the on the version of uh, Little Women? That, that copyright uh, featured in that as, as yes. almost yeah, as a yeah. kind of an adjunct to that, that conversation. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if you've seen the recent, um, well, the most recent film. Um, no, I haven't yet, no. Uh, Jane is an expert uh, yeah. in pronouncing the, the actor that plays the, the lead part, aren't you, Jane? We're not going <laughs> to go there with making me try and pronounce Irish names because he, li- he likes to... Um, mock me a little. I, I can't pronounce things at the best of times. And uh, 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 is it is it Sersha? No, it's not. Is it sort Should we should we go down that whole? Yeah, let, let, let's not go down. Anyway, he, he lets me struggle to try to pronounce her name. <laughs> how you say it. So, but anyway, in in that film, there is a bit where, um, and I know from a couple of people who who obviously saw it on Twitter shared it that you know it, it, she decides she wants to retain yeah. her copyright as the you know she's written these novels and wants to retain it, and there was kind of almost a moment where people want to. Um, like cheer, I think, in the cinema. If you're, if you know about copyright, you kind of have this little, little celebration inside. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'll find you the clip. I'm sure it'll be on YouTube. <laughs> so, uh, talking of that, then, which is yeah. a kind of a, a nerdy anecdote about copyright, we like to ask if anybody does have anything that they, you know, something that comes to mind if they're at a dinner party or down the pub and and, and copyright. Crops up. Uh, have you got anything to share from us, <laughs> I must say, I'll constantly go to dinner parties where copyright crops up. So I, I am prepared. <laughs> um, but I, um, I recently, um, our household's recently grown to include a new puppy, and I had. I investigated that there is copyright that could cover pets. So um, I'm not one of those people, but um, if you have, for example, a particularly famous cat or dog um, who's, um, you know, of fame on the internet um, and post regular pup dates, there is apparently copyright that can protect um, 
the the, the cat or the pet or um, registering claims on that. So I have been looking up copyright on pets. <laughs> is, this, is this related to grumpy cat? Is this I, is this in relation to grumpy cat? I think this meme? is one of the most famous examples. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. Because I think, yes, I. It it feels like this ought to be something you should know more about. I think I think maybe we need to do a an animal special. Um, (laughs) I would. I think that what we've got here is is copyright law works differently in different countries. So Mm -hmm. under the UK, we have a closed list system, and I don't remember Grumpy Cat being or one of the the list. Certainly, the picture would be. I think there 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 are laws around. Uh, personality rights, like it, oh, it, it, it's, it's the way that yeah. like a, yeah. a personality would look. But there is yeah. definitely there's a been there's quite a few posts actually on the um, on the on the uh, IP cat blog, and it's not just a, a blog about cats. It is actually about intellectual property that covers some of that. So that I think what we'll do cat pictures on it. It does. I think what we'll do then, as part of this, because it's a really it's a really great story because it's always good to look at pictures of cats on the internet we'll dig out <laughs> some of the posts that actually do explore this because then you get mm. into all the because this is the kind of thing that lawyers absolutely love as soon as you get i mean librarians lawyers everyone loves cats really or a puppy or, or a, a puppy. puppy yeah so what's what is your puppy's name um, her name is Posy, and um, she's going to be 12 weeks old on Friday and driving oh, me absolutely up the wall most of the time, however cute she is. <laughs> so, yeah, she's um, a chocolate Labrador. Um, well, she's a cross, but still, yeah, so not a lot of sleeping, but a lot of energy. Oh, oh, we may have to see pictures of her, obviously with the appropriate permissions. So. <laughs> I mean that's that's obviously you know big news for you but is there is there anything you can share with us on um kind of topical copyright related news oh oh hold that thought hold that thought he's got a jingle up his copyright news 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 copyright sounds like it's time for some copyright news so I guess the most newsworthy news that I have is that um, there'll be quite a lot of sessions uh, in and around um, open textbooks and copyright um, in a very global context coming up at ALT's OER conference in April. Um, that is really mm-hmm. the, um, you know, the part of the, um, the work that we're promoting and focusing on at the moment. Um, I'm always interested in learning kind of you know, global perspectives on copyright and open education. And I I hope that this conference will provide a valuable forum for that. And it's part of, you know, ALT's commitment to the Open COVID Pledge for Education as well, that all the conference sessions will be made openly accessible um, after the event. So if you're not able to come along, you'll still be able to um, access all the resources and the recordings um, after the conference. So that is, I think, our next big um, rallying point for driving that agenda forward. And I hope very much that we'll be able to focus a little bit more on the ethical framework, which will launch in September um, in the intervening months. And if anybody's interested in becoming involved or just keeping up to date, um, there is an open, um, open working group which you can join and sign up for at any time. 
Okay, That's brilliant. Right, yeah. yeah, thank you. Really useful. And and just to say on that that event, which is happening in April, uh, we will be presenting. And I'm just desperately looking around for the date because I did write 21st, it down. 20, 21st, the 22nd of April of 2021. Yes. So if you are listening yes. before then, then consider registering. If it's afterwards, then clearly look up uh, some of those resources. But we are going to be presenting there along with fellow members of the cool SIG and we are going to be drawing those links between open educational practice and copyright and copyright literacy and seeing how we can build on the work we've done and try to bring those communities together to really help people. Um, so and I think that- It's a great isn't it? It's a great, we've been, when it's happened in real life, um, mm. a couple of times, but this is uh, you the know, second time you're actually running com computers. Online. Computers are real life. They just happen to be real life with you sitting in your bedroom. That's the, that's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm thinking probably back to OER 19 in Galway. And uh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was. Um, It'll be a real live conference, but online. <laughs> it will be, it will be an actual real conference in the real world with real people, uh, but online. So we're looking forward to that one. Thank you. Yes, yes, um, yes. So uh, where do you go to keep yourself up to date with things you need to know about? Presumably copyright, uh, you, if you if you need to stay up to date with copyright and matters to do with online learning, there's there's a fairly good webinar, isn't there, that you can tune into every other week? <laughs> We're so fortunate. Absolutely. Um, Friday is in my diary. And we also have this brand new copyright special interest group that is open to everybody to join for free. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm very glad to be very close to experts. And I must say, I have learned a lot from a lot of the sessions that I've been to. Um, and there's never enough, I think, that you can learn. As you know, I'm also a data protection officer, so there is a whole sort of realm of GDPR um, related legislation and things like that that I keep up with. So it is really important, I think, um, a piece of work that you are two doing. So just out of interest, you clearly have a lot of things to think about being the chief executive of, you know, it's a small team, but you have a lot of members and a lot of influence, um, but you need to be aware of a, a range of things. So, so how do you actually keep on top of all of these different things you need to think about? <laughs> um, barely is the answer to that, I think. Um, no, but I, you know, I um, I make use of the activities that that we mentioned, like quite literally. You know, I go to webinars. I'm signed up to hundreds of different just mail lists um, where members discuss things. I, I have a lot of trustees and members' expertise to draw on, and um, I think I learned really early on in my job that there is no you know, CEO that has the answers all of the time. And last year in particular, I think, you know, we all ran out of answers very quickly. And I think one of the lessons that I learned really early on as a leader is, you know, to admit that and to say, okay, I don't actually know what we're going to be doing. Um, it's not a very comfortable spot to be in, but that is sometimes the most effective way of leading. And so asking honest, questions and yeah. not knowing is the key here. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it all leads back to the start of our conversation with sort of open practice. And I guess, um, you know, that's where it kind of comes back to. So I can, I, can I ask you to, to just say a few words? I've read your blog on Jean-Luc Picard and the lessons that we can <laughs> learn from Jean-Luc because he's a big hero of mine. Oh, yeah. So um, I have a, a Jean-Luc Picard 
badge that says make it so which I wear on days <laughs> when I'm not feeling quite so confident myself and yeah he is an absolute hero of mine and I think um, the inspiration behind my career for sure I love Star Trek more than I love Star Wars and um, I watched it a lot The Next Generation is the series of um, Star Trek that I grew up with and my dad and I are big fans and watched all of it many many times over and um, yeah I always I, I learned a lot from from that quiet quiet approach to leadership um that is for sure so yeah i still watch star trek quite a lot (laughs) i'm learning i did not know that about chris but chris you're not going to tell me you like star trek better than star wars are you see (laughs) this is the kind of situation where i feel there's no need to have one thing being better than another thing they both have their own that does lead me on to uh, I think sometimes you have to pin you know your your answers down you have to be very colors to the mast that's it yes something like that it's one of those metaphors that I kind of half know and then I get a bit yes you've got to pin something to the something who knows but if you had to pin a cake to your mouth Mm, now i want to say at this point we often bring people cakes and i thought that there is nothing nicer when you're on a video call with someone than being having various cakes waved at you so i've got some things here that can wave across the screen Mm. quality quality goods that sounds amazing (laughs) this is in lieu of actually bringing you something which is what we (laughs) normally do in real life well, we can post, I can post one of these. I can post one. Here we are. A nice toffee crisp as well. Post, but, post bar and a toffee crisp, right. <laughs> so just to, um, before I reveal my favourite cake, I just to say, um, I, I've done this before. I've sent my team cake, like when we have, you know, sort of Very big nice. occasions. Yes, I do. And, um, and I've ordered them all sort of cake and then we all eat the same cake, although we're all in different places. It really works. So, um well, I definitely it's don't. Not re- in the jiffy bag, presumably. You you post it in something so that it gets there in one piece. Yeah, so um, I am unable to bake anything edible. Okay. So I, I purchased a cake and then have it shipped to them. Um, nice. So I, um, nice. I'm not able to um, to bake anything edible. Um, but sometimes when we have a team day out, for example, as we we do have um sometimes we get treats through the post and i also believe in sending them postcards with nice feedback on and things like that so i'm definitely into things by mail um but that's no encouragement to send me cake um just as a side note but um my favorite cake i think would be to do this chris is more than happy to post (laughs) me cake well probably usually to him it's something very elaborate there'll probably be a lot of cream and icing and all sorts of things the the, the irony of of what's just happened to me there is whilst i think i understand mara you've been doing a bit of build-up and talking about delivery of baked goods we don't know what the the cake is actually i had to answer the door there because um, (laughs) i've just received 15, 15 kilos of pizza flour oh so, wow so there we go um okay. which, is, which is nice well maybe he'll be posting you a pizza so maybe well, that would be you. that would be ideal because i love pizza above cake for sure um but on the cake front i think lemon drizzle i like lemon drizzle 
That is so, one of Chris's specialties, I it believe. It is. I do well. make a nice lemon drizzle, mm. so I'll bear that in mind. Is it lemony enough, though? Because that's, I think, my key complaint with mm. a lot of the ones that I've bought. They're kind of like sponge cake with a bit of lemon, but they're not actually lemony. And so um, yeah. I've, I've struggled finding lemony lemon cake. <laughs> How many lemons do you put in your lemon drizzle cake, Chris? Uh, I, put, I would say the zest and juice of a whole lemon. Just that one. Good. Just one. I thought just it was one. Is that not enough? Or something. I thought you had a forty-two in them. <laughs> I was you're you're originally from Germany, aren't you, Mark? That's right. Yeah. So I was I was wondering if you were going to say Schwarzwaldkirchtorte. Uh, no, my mother would definitely be on that team. That's for sure. But no, I don't eat a lot of dairy, and so um, anything with cream, I'm not big on. Um, and I like loaf cakes, so anything that you can put in a loaf tin um but yeah now the only mm. cake i like that involves cream is carrot cake or like sort of butter mm. cream mm. frosting mm. <laughs> oh you're making me hungry <laughs> all this cake talk <laughs> i believe there are copyright cupcakes on some occasions so oh yes Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. We we have cake toppers, um, but we, uh, we 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 actually have them with the little characters on as well from our oh, game. Oh, nice! <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So we 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 do like to give people cakes, really. Um, so we'll, let's see what we can do. Let's let's see what we can come up with. But not this selection of confectionery that I have in front of me, because none of them are really cakes at all. But anyway, <laughs> oh, this is this has been wonderful. We could probably continue waffling about the cake aspect of this for a lot longer. It's it's but it's been really interesting hearing you know all the kind of different aspects of of your world and you know you you really are somebody that has um, given us so much amazing support. So we want to thank you. Thank you for coming on the waffle, but we really do want to thank you you know for for the support that you've given us and for saying yes to this you know one webinar a year ago that you know obviously <laughs> thousands of people later we're still going and well, I, i'm absolutely delighted to be working with you and we are so proud to have the cool sake as part of the alt family so i'm really looking forward to what the next year brings and hopefully mm. cake and hugs in person at some point I hope so, definitely. Absolutely, yeah. So thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>